This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cami here. We will be back with new episodes in the new year. Until then, please enjoy this best of featuring Vico Ortiz, Ijoma Luo, and Meg Stalter. Also, huge shout out today to those who support the show. You can go to patreon.com slash heyqueeros and get all the information about how to keep your favorite podcast on the air. On the air? That's nothing. This I, this is not on the Is this on the air? Are podcasts on the It doesn't matter. Robin Moxley, Beck, Leslie Goditis, Chantel McClelland, Trisha Thalmer, Francine Bobinov, Paula Vodowski, Aidan Peterson, Rachel McIntyre, Caitlin, Pickles G, Brittany Carlson, Stacey Tanyajesic, Levon Sweke, Chloe Vicker, Becky Kalin, Carrie Boland, Audrey Rower, Katie Gagliardo, Kevin Fry, Bobby Dahmer, Morgan Friday, Jessica Lustig, Danny Elkhorn, Liesel Jensen, Eliza Dornbush, Jennifer Grinda, Brenda Esposito, Fiona Marabara, Amy A., Jen Graf Perkins, Catherine Michaels and B. Aaron Talbot. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still holding on, darling. I know, I know, I know it's careless. Yes. Awesome. Hi. Hey. <laughs> I, I always have guests on the podcast introduce themselves. Would you introduce yourself? Absolutely. Um, what's up? I am Vico Ortiz. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, en español, ella, le. I am born and raised in Puerto Rico. I'm an actor, drag king, and um, a professional queerdo. <laughs> yeah, sure. Totally. I feel like, are you still, do you still king around? I don't know the right verbiage, the right verb. I love kinging around. Um, I love that. Uh, I haven't done a live show since before the pandemic. The last show I did was March 7th of 2020, uh, just a few days away between the, yeah. the end of everything. Um, but uh, I've been wanting to do a live show for the longest time. It's just um, every time a friend of mine is like, hey, there's a show this day, I am either not in town or I am filming. So I'm hoping that soon I get to do it because I'm craving one. Right. And what is what is that experience like? Uh, kinging? I feel like I don't actually think we've had a drag king on oh, the show. Hey, I love this. Um, isn't I that love, weird? I love to be Was the that, first that's drag That's so king. strange and sad, I'm, isn't it? I'm so here for it, though. I mean, I think it's always a good, you know, we'll rip the Band-Aid and then many kings will come. Um, I definitely... I'm trying to think if that's not true. I think it is true, though. Yes, but keep going, keep going. Yes. Um, drag kinging, I'm just going to start using that from now on, uh, came upon <laughs> me completely by accident. My friend uh, Kathleen Jaffe was producing the first, like, king show called Them Fatales, uh, like... I want to say five or six years ago. And um, and it was a fundraiser. And she was like, have you ever done drag? And I was like, I have barely even heard of drag. But I, I mean, I, I know the queens, but I've never heard of a king. But sure, let's do it. And um, 
I looked a lot of, I looked up a lot of YouTube videos and, uh, and obviously mostly saw Queens and I was like, well, it's lip syncing and dressing up like a dude. So let's just go. And I dressed up like Ricky Martin and I chose the Ricky Martin song and I got on stage and I did it and it changed my life. <laughs> it changed my whole, uh, it, tell me more. It truly was such a euphoric moment, uh, for me to be up there and, and feel so sensual and sexy and, and tapping into the power of my femininity within this masculine persona. <gasps> like it really Gasp. just, Truly, yeah, it, it it really just shifted how, I mean, that was when I started questioning my gender. Um, kinging helped me um, start that process. And I started realizing that a lot of the guys that I liked to uh, dress up like or or sort of imitate were um, effeminate men or gay <gasps> men. And Pico, I'm like gasping. I'm <laughs> gasping. I knew we, I, can I just tell you, I kind of knew we were the same thing. What? I, I like, love this. Just like, I don't know. I don't we don't know each other at all, but I kind of spotted you several years ago and I was like, well, I think we might be the same thing. But anyway, keep I'm going. I'm so here for this. I'm so here for this. And if, have you ever kinged before? No, but this thing that you're talking about, like this is, this is something I've been thinking a lot about lately. So I don't know that I even feel like called in that direction, but like, cool, maybe it would be fun. Um, I've been thinking a lot about as this sort of conversation about gender moved forward in the, at the very least in the queer community a bunch of years ago, and then like now more on a just larger cultural stage. Um, as it was moving forward, I think that when I was like first thinking about gender stuff for me, I think one thing that felt like a big block is that like, I think of myself as um, like masculine. I, I feel very masculine as a woman, but then I also feel like the people that I've ever wanted to be or styled myself after, it's always been effeminate men. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Like I'm, you know, obsessed with like, it's, you know, it's, I mean, I don't even have to list, but it's, you know, it's the the Bowies and the Prince and everything. And then in the last couple of years, younger folks like Timothy Chalamet was just on the red carpet wearing a women's suit. And I feel like when I was first thinking about my gender, I was I was watching a lot of folks like sort of go. I don't even have the right language, but like hard masculine, like Matt, like trying to be um, like lean into the sort of edge of masculinity like the fullest masculine masculine mm -hmm, right and mm -hmm. so and that's also you know friends and family members of ours who have like transitioned and then had that reflected in their body made choices about hormones or surgical um changes that they want to make and while i like totally i don't i don't think anybody else needs to do anything different i think for me it became really confusing because i was like well, i kind of like the body that I have and I kind of like my face and I already feel like I look like a dude, but do you not, you know, like, I think it was this sort of real, um, middle place that, that it really felt like, yeah, it's like this feminine masculinity or this masculine femininity. And it's not something that I'm like, that I'm really feeling we're talking about yet in a much larger sense. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. because I think a lot of folks, 
it just it's like the luck of the draw on who has been speaking publicly so far. It's a lot of folks who like wanted to make changes and I don't really want to make changes. So then I think I've felt confused about how to help people see who I think I already am and always have been. Does that make sense, Vico? It makes 100% sense. And I resonate with a lot of what you're saying. Um, I feel like I feel like that's part of the journey, you know, just like existing mm -hmm. in that. I mean, it's breaking some of those expectations as well. I feel like mm -hmm. whenever I've thought about maybe uh, either doing HRT or doing some sort of uh, surgical procedure, I don't want to uh, be perceived as... Um, man. <laughs> I don't like, it's like, I, yeah. I, I kind of love the fact that I'm like, am an effeminate masculine person. And also, yeah, like I like having those two things and I love, uh, uh, where my body is at right now. And similarly, like I love, I do love just like walking into a room and sometimes having people be like, I don't know, what is happening here? <laughs> but I like you. And I'm like, there we go. That's all you really need to like understand is that you like enjoy me as a human and I enjoy you as a human and we can connect. Um, uh, cause I feel like we're so sometimes wrapped up at, at, uh, at with that, right. It's like, I need to figure you out. And it's like, well, yeah. I think the purpose of living is to just constantly be figuring it out. You know, we don't have totally. to have it like 100%, you know, I think, part of being queer um, or the realization of our queerness is that we're ever evolving, ever changing, ever exploring and allowing uh, ourselves to come authentically to each and every day, you know, like what I feel today might be different tomorrow and both are mm -hmm. valid. Um, and who I was five years ago will be very different from, you know, will I be five years from now? Um, and, uh, and, and, giving that a chance to, to just be. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of it is also, you know, for me anyway, it's like this pressure to, I just feel like, I feel like a lot of folks want instruction on how to see me, how to see me and what to call me. And, um, I feel like I've had some some frustration mm. because I feel like I've been telling folks. I mean, it's 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 um it's also wonderful that people want to ask. You know, it's a it's a it, there's two sides of the same coin. Um, it's wonderful that people are curious, and it's wonderful that we're having these conversations. And then I also feel pressure to like get it right and to be able to articulate it and to be able to have a finite answer, like a finish line answer, mm -hmm. um, where I just don't feel that way. You know, like I feel, I feel like I already am at the finish line and have been for a long time. Yeah. And I think that's confusing when we've just started the conversation. It's like, we're, we're kind of mm. not quite there yet, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And it makes sense also to, to want to have, you know, instructions and to want to have. Like, totally. Because uh, yes. I mean, we have. It all makes sense. hundred <laughs> percent. Because, you know, we've been, we've been, since the moment we're brought into this, you know, dimension, um, we are given instructions, you know, like, okay, great. Like you came out and you got to do this and you got to do that. And like, these are the steps you got to make to like, you know, function right in this uh, uh, society. But when you start realizing that like, 
all these systems and structures are really just to put you in a in a lane so you don't look to the side or within. And when you start taking mm-hmm. all those things away and start removing all these instructions, it's like, wait, where is the structure? And it's like, the structure is that there is none. <laughs> um, yeah. And then you're just like a floating blob of love <laughs> trying to figure <laughs> out. <laughs> um, also, I mean... I guess the thing is, is like, yes, I feel like a floating blob of love. I also feel like a physical body. Like, I like my body, you know, um, for the maybe the first time in my life. I I'm, love that. I'm feeling like, because I think that's the other thing. It's like, then in order to conceptualize this, it's like, don't even think of me as a body. You know, it's it's all like, it has to stay gray because it's like, well, don't even think of me as a body. Then that means like, I have to leave my body behind, which means I can't like my body. And I, honestly, I do push-ups every day so that I can flex. And feel good about it. So are you going to tell me I can't fucking take constant pictures of myself flexing in the bathroom mirror? Because no, thank you. I'm not ready to give that up. I love this. I love this. Also, I don't know if it happened to you, but once I started to reclaim what femininity and masculinity were for me Mm -hmm. and just said F you to like everything that was expected of me, uh, that's Mm -hmm. when I started to really... really be like, oh, wow. Yeah. I have, I have a gorgeous body. I have all these like Mm. things that I like, I, in the beginning I was like very like, oh, I don't want to show it off. Cause it's like, Ooh, it's expected of this. And now I'm just like, oh no, like I love this, you know, uh, vessel that I have. Um, cause I'm reclaiming these like features for me. No. So it's like, it's not, I'm trying to, I'm not trying to like fit into like what society wants. It's like, no, I want this for me and I'm like loving this for me. And then now I just feel sexy and sensual and masculine and feminine and all of the things that I want. I don't know if that resonates with you too. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, and I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast, so I'm so sorry to listeners, but like a couple months ago, I posted this photo on Instagram where like, this is actually a big turning point for me, just sort of in the general understanding of this. Like, I posted this photograph where you could kind of see cleavage, like not very much, but a little bit. And um, I have like, I have big boobs. I have like a D-sized chest, which I have felt pretty weird about for a long time because, like, I remember one time I was at a pool party, which is a thing that you do when you live in Los Angeles and you're an adult, not something I ever did outside of childhood when I lived in Chicago. That makes but, sense. <laughs> um, I was at a pool party and I was trying to tell one of my friends at the time, we were literally no longer friends, but I was trying to tell one of my friends at the time, like, I feel like, I feel like Don Draper in a Joan body. And she said to me, she was like, I mean, I was in a bathing suit when I said this. And she said, oh, so you're like comparing yourself to the two hottest people on the planet, which was kind of a dick thing to say, because what I was trying to do was convey that, like, I know that you might have certain expectations of me based on the fact, based on how I look in a bathing suit. Like, I don't really wear, like, sporty volleyball lesbian uh, triangle bikini tops I have to wear like an underwire and like some support because my boobs are huge and that makes me feel weird because I it doesn't it's like it makes me feel weird because of you because you're around Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm, know mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. um so I was trying to confide like don't like don't be confused you know like I'm still an ad executive that is a bad person you know like um (laughs) anyway 
I posted this picture on Instagram and some folks commented on the cleavage and started calling me mommy. <laughs> what is <laughs> Which made me feel insane. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> because I was like, oh my God, like these are, and it's, and it's also fine to be a mommy, but I don't really feel like a mommy. I think I said, I feel like a daddy. And then people were saying, actually, just FYI, you're a mommy. And I wanted to punch myself in the face. I deleted it. And then like maybe 48 hours later, I reposted it. And I just said, like, correct me based on like what you can see. Like, I know I have boobs. I'm trying to be more confident and tell you this is who I am. You don't have to tell me. I Like feedback not required. That is, I think... That is, I think, the mo- the the biggest problem, right? Yeah, just people want to just put their thoughts on who you are rather than just letting you be. And the fact that you yeah. were like, I feel like a daddy, and everyone was like, actually, no. You're like, excuse me. Isn't that <laughs> shitty? Why? <laughs> what? I it's said, so shitty. I feel like a daddy. And you're trying to correct how I feel? What is this assumption? Ooh. What is this audacity? On Yeah, wow. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing, and wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Um, so you want to talk about race was released in, I'm going to, is it 2018? Yes, I believe so. Yeah. Oh my God. I just did yeah. that <laughs> off the top of my head. That's, that's, that's when I, okay, awesome. Um, so you want to talk about race was, was released in 2018 and like, you know, I, and I mean, I remember seeing it be initially very impactful and, and have a big life and then it had a big second life in that in 2020 when the black lives matter was movement was back in the streets in a more visible way i feel like folks were you know ev- i mean that moment of like everybody's trying to publish their list everybody's tr- trying to talk about resources the the way that your book came back into i mean even just by title it's it's like literally the the nation was sort of saying some folks let's talk about race and then <laughs> that is like an <laughs> that is like so you want to talk about race and and um I'm just very I'm very curious about well let's talk about the initial re- release of the book what was that experience like when it when it was first released oh it was you know beautiful in very many ways right so I would say as a Black woman, <laughs> publishing a book is almost always going to be difficult because the industry is overwhelmingly white. I was the only non-white person to touch my book until it went into the stores. Wow. And that process can be 
damaging, just like, you know, it would be, and especially if you're writing about race. Um, I would say my experience was better than a lot of other Black writers have um, with my editor. But when it came time to publicity, we did initially have a lot of issues where, you know, it was probably months before I was sat in front of another Black person to actually talk about my books. It was constantly, here's another white person to talk about this. Wow. And it was really marketed in the space. And I had to really push hard and it was really painful. And it was my first book. So I wasn't sure where I could, you know, bring things up or how. So that part was tough, but I will say the the beauty of the book was that, you know, it didn't have this huge, great launch. It was heavily supported here in Seattle. There were pockets where it did well. It was very respectable, but it never stopped selling. It was the type of book where people were constantly emailing me and going, my cousin told me I need this, or my boss read this and now my team's reading it. And and it did that for for years. And that meant so much to me. It meant so much to me to see that someone picked it up, found utility in it, and said, you should read this too. And that was the response overwhelmingly. And when we look at the sales numbers, it was just this, you know, your initial bump when you first, and then a steady line for for two years. Which is really unusual. I, yeah. I mean, I just to I'm for anybody that's listening, this is like not a thing <laughs> yeah. for yeah. many, many books, you know, like because that it's really the initial sales that that most people or that most that the whole industry is built on the initial sales, maybe a paperback launch down the line. But it's this is not this is yeah. very, very uncommon. Yeah. And when you publish a book, they'll tell you your best chance of getting on the New York Times bestseller list is that first week with the pre-sales. Mine didn't make it then. It was a couple months later that it actually made it. And it, it was just this constant, regular thing. So that made me so happy. I would get emails from people saying, I, you know, I'm in an interracial marriage and my wife and I worked through this book on a road trip and we understand each other better, or my team is using this to try to, you know, create a healthier work environment. So I was very proud of it. I was very proud of how it was being used. I absolutely would have called the book a success um, pre-June of 2020. Right. Uh, and I didn't think, you know, I thought this was, this was a great life for a first book. And then... June 2020 happened. And what happened next for you? <laughs> that was wild. Um, I cannot say it was enjoyable. Honestly, it was a really traumatizing time because I'm first and foremost a Black woman, right? So I am in that moment or in the middle of this pandemic. I am heartbroken, grieving, scared, looking at, you know, these murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor once again, um, these very public killings and just gutted and my partner is as well and then I get a call saying you're number one in the New York Times bestseller list and I was so angry I was really really angry um because these are all people who could have been doing this work it's not like we didn't know there was a problem it's not like we weren't saying there was a problem it had to be it had to make enough white people uncomfortable for them to do something. And it made me so upset that it hadn't made them uncomfortable before, that they were just starting. And, and to start with this book, because I was like, man, you know, if I had written How to Burn Shit Down, that would be the book I would want to sell out in June of 2020. Because that's really where I was. I was like, why? Why? Why now? Why now are you trying to talk about this thing that's killing us? And um, it was hard. I didn't want to, I didn't celebrate it. I didn't want to talk about it. Like my agent was really clear with my publishing team. Like, please don't send emails right now. This is absolutely not a celebratory time for her. Um, it was really difficult. And then I had to, I had to take some time to really be like, well, 
I mean, I'm doing this work because this is where we are. So I have to meet the moment where it is. We have to keep going from here. Um, but it was gross. It was, it was gross to get so much attention, to have people, I don't think people realize that when they write to you and say they just realized with this murder, this is a problem. And thank you for writing this book, that they're admitting that they've lived in a world surrounded by people being impacted by this and they haven't been paying attention. Like that's what they're saying. And I was getting dozens of emails a day from people saying, oh, I've been ignoring this, you know, oh, but thank you for helping me realize it's a problem. And it's not like we haven't been here screaming and yelling and people haven't been dying this whole time. And um, it was really, really traumatizing. Um, and I'm so glad I had my partner through that. You know, I'm, we were all, I think a lot of people don't get that a lot of Black people who do this work, you know, we were all collectively grieving. We we're all, and not just grieving, but frantic and worried. You know, I live in Seattle. Um, I'm worried for every protester that was down at the chop, you know, um, fighting, you know, and holding this kind of this liberated space, um, getting gassed by police officers. I'm what I'm worried about people getting COVID while they're out fighting for black lives. You know, all of these things, all these young people that I consider, you know, my community and every other black writer and speaker I know was in this space where they're traumatized and worried. And then they're getting calls from countless white people. And so I don't think a lot of people realize, like, we spent most of our time checking in with each other. We spent most of our time being like, I get, I get text messages from writer friends saying like, hey, this is a really funny romantic comedy. You should watch this tonight because I think you need some time off. Or did you eat today? You know, have you taken some time? And we were really just trying to hold each other afloat through this time that felt really heavily exploitative. Um, and trying, but also knowing it wasn't a time we could back down from because we had to see what could be done because we're actually fighting for people, you know? And, um, and then of course the backlash that came with it, the, the way that people resented the attention and the time on our, you know, that came to us, not realizing that we resented a lot of it as well, um, you know, was, was really difficult and, um, it wasn't an easy time. It's, it was not in the, in the slightest. I'm glad my work could be of benefit to some people. I wish they had realized that in 2018 and that maybe we could have been a little further along when people were desperate for real action, that they weren't trying to figure out how to talk, you know? Yeah, that makes all the sense in the world to me. I'm thinking about um, a couple of years ago, I had this friend say to me, just in talking about like who we go to for support, um, that it's like a wheel. And when something affects you, one, for support, the best place to go is further out in the wheel toward folks who are less affected. But a lot of times a mistake that is made is going closer toward the hub of the wheel. And toward the folks that are like more affected, because that is the person that I think we assume sees the same thing that we see or sees it even better. So this was just something that that somebody told me. I mean, I was it was it was like early days of um, COVID and my partner Katie was sick with COVID. And I was <laughs> I mean, this is I was I was trying to talk to Katie about how hard it was that she was sick with COVID. I was like, this is really scary. You'd so, I'm so scared you're sick. And then I like, thank God, 
called a friend, you know, and one of my friends was like, well, it's you can't. Katie's not the person like Katie's Katie's Katie has COVID like it's like that's the person who's more affected um and I just this this certainly I'd heard things like that before but just this wheel that that visual really stood out to me and I'm thinking about it um as you're describing and I you know how I perceived living through that time it just felt like I think white people were really moving toward the center of the wheel to to lean on black folks to to validate that we saw what they were saying you know like and i think that um i mean it sounds enormously harmful as you describe it it sounds that sounds exactly right to me i think that's that sounds exactly like what was happening i think the utter panic of that time um, for white folks. It just, it was like a, it was like a scramble. It was a, it was a scramble to, it's also like a pain response when, when we're in pain and we just want the pain to stop. And so we'll do anything. I mean, it's like a, an addiction response or something, you know, it, it just felt, it, felt pretty unhealthy um and i i don't know where we are today like how does this feel to you today as maybe you're receiving like less frenetic and frantic energy but that still happened yeah i i think you know mostly what's interesting i think right now is if you're interested in the work you try to get as much as you could accomplished you know you really tried to push through knowing this momentum wasn't going to last. There were so many interviewers, so many white people going, what's different about this time? What's changed? And I was like, you can't look at this time and say anything's different. We'll know five years from now, depending on what systems get changed. What's different about this time? We don't know. It could just be a lot of people got upset for three months and nothing happened. Or it could be we pushed through some really important change that saved lives. Um, and that only time will tell. Difference isn't how outraged you are because, you know, as as my brother says, that doesn't raise my credit score, right? Like you being sad and you crying doesn't actually save Black lives. You voting differently, you spending money differently, you demanding change saves Black lives. And so I think where we're at now is there were some areas where people, you know, I, I think a lot of times what people don't get is that even when Black Lives Matter and when these protests aren't front and center, we are constantly fighting for Black lives, constantly making change. There are, there are Black moms in their school board meetings demanding differences for how school boards run, right? There are abolitionists out there working to post bail and get people out of jail, and you're working to get resources for people, right? We have all these things are always happening. So when the opportunity arised, there was a lot of groundwork already in place to push forward some really important changes. And those are wonderful things. But for a lot of other people where they don't have that power or that network isn't built, especially I would say in hyper-capitalist areas of business, where a lot of Black people spend so much of their day, they were promised a lot of change that never happened. And they were, and they had, they were subjected to a lot of white tears and they got no benefit whatsoever. All they had, all they got was trying to deal with their pain while also having the pain of white people who are just upset at witnessing pain, right? 
um, being being shoved onto them in the hopes that you know us as magical Negroes will have that word of wisdom, that solution, because people often think that we are specially adapted to pain and suffering, and we're not. We are just as traumatized as anyone else who would have to go through this day in and day out. Um, and so they went through all of that. They went through the listening sessions at their work. They heard all their local pro- politicians say Black Lives Matter. They saw all the signs show up in their rapidly gentrifying streets. And then nothing happened. And I think that that's kind of where we're at right now. And the only kind of benefit I, I see to it, the only, because we always have to find, like, what benefit is there to be had? We have to find that moment. Otherwise, we kind of go crazy, right? Um is that at least we have this collective moment within Black society where we see what happens when the, prom- when the promises are just words, right? We see it, we saw clearly, and, and hopefully never again will those words suffice. Hopefully the next time we're told, oh, we're going to do something, we're going to say when and how and sign your name on this line and what's going to happen if you don't. Um, and not to say that there weren't Black people trying that, but I do think that it was something that we needed collectively to see how much lip service could really be given to this with no action. And then I'd say also to see, this is a point I've been making anytime I do any sort of speaking in any entity, to see how on a dime every corporation, every school system, every government system could change overnight to accommodate white people in COVID. And yet every basic accommodation that we've asked for to make people of color safe in workspaces, to get them services in schools, to get them services from local governments, and every accommodation that disabled people have been asking for forever to be able to participate fully in public life has been denied time and time again. And hopefully, if there's any silver lining, we will be able to hold up this evidence to the bullshit that says we're asking for too much, that what we're saying is impossible, that it all takes time. Because we watched this whole world get turned upside down when white people needed to get something. And it may have been imperfect, but, you know, I've talked to school districts who said they can't change disciplinary policies. It's too hard. And yet they can find a way to educate 100% of their students online and build whole policies and training around that. You know, that's the only that's only hope is that I think collectively we need to remind each other, and I'm constantly reminding people, like, we've seen what people are capable of, and we saw how much the, they will let us down if we don't actually have them show up with that change in hand and really push it all the way through. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do you mind my asking how you are doing? Oh, you know, <laughs> it's been... We, you know, my family personally has had a really rough couple of years and also a really wonderful couple of years. You know, my partner and I have an absolutely beautiful, beautiful partnership, which helps. And, and I'd say, you know, being partnered with a Black man during this has been wonderful and beautiful, you know, uh, because I, I absolutely needed that specific support. I've, I've been a single mom most of my life. This is, um, you know, and most of my relationships I never brought into my home. This is the, this is the first time in a long time that, you know, I've been fully partnered and having that support from someone who understands is really helpful. But, you know, we've been in this pandemic. I've been doing this work every case. You know, I've been I, I get personal emails from black people every time that they're being harmed, violently harmed. Um, and I'm trying to help people through that. I have two kids. I was trying to navigate through a pandemic. Our house burned down. Um, you know, my son got covid. Like all, everything that could kind of happen, happened, but I'm still here. And 
We also built some really beautiful things. You know, we had an artist relief fund that got over a million dollars out to Seattle artists, um, focused primarily on um, Seattle artists of color and queer and trans and disabled artists. And that was a beautiful thing at a time when people weren't sure how they were going to, you know, make a living. And we, you know, we held strong. And now I think it's like, I do what a lot of other Black women do. We are always expected to kind of keep everything together for all of the ways in which white supremacy tears our community apart, right? When our sons, our husbands, our partners are locked away, we are the ones supposed to keep the lights on. We're the ones supposed to raise the kids. You know, we're the ones supposed to show up at schools to fight teachers that don't want to educate our children. We're the ones that are, you know, we're supposed to really carry a lot of this burden. And so what we do in times of crisis is we say, let me get through this. Let me get through this. Let me get through this. And so I think, you know, where I'm at right now is that phase where things seem to be settling for a moment. And I'm like, oh man, now I got to find a therapist, you know, and I have to find a black therapist, a black queer therapist. Like it's, I live in Seattle. Like it's, it's ridiculously hard. It's ridiculously hard to find a black queer therapist. That I don't have a personal history with in this city. <laughs> sure. It's really difficult. Like I was going through this list like, oh no, 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 no. Oh no, no, I can't. Oh you know, my God. Of it's course. really difficult. So it's just, you know, that's, that's where we're at right now. But you know, I'm getting married this summer. We're healing. It's always a, I've, I've said before, it's hard to heal from something that keeps happening, you know, and you can't say I'm healed from white supremacy or patriarchy. Um, but prioritizing and keeping space for, you know, how you need that is is vital. You know, when I started, I can't believe I haven't told you this. When I started com- like wanting to do comedy in Ohio, like I was like, okay, it's time to do. I um, was like in love with my friend. And he's the one that introduced me to you. Like oh, he wow. he sent me all your podcasts. And oh like, wow! And um, we d- don't talk anymore. But sometimes he'll message me <laughs> oh, <laughs> once wow. in a while, and he's really like happy for me. But he was so he, really really obsessed with you. And I didn't know like any cool com- like I didn't know like comedy wow. could be like a your way into acting or like I didn't even know how it worked. Could, like yeah, I just did an improv class and met him, and he was like telling me about you and sending me all these podcasts and he was obsessed with Pete Holmes too. So like oh I was God. listening every day to your podcast and Pete Holmes podcast when I started. And yeah, then I moved to Chicago and we kind of, um, I confessed my feelings for him on New Year's Eve. <laughs> How did really it go? Dramatic. How did it go? Well, I, well, he wasn't, he didn't feel the same. I think he felt like some more, um, like we were really obsessed with each other. And I think, and, and this was like, I thought I was really straight and I, not that I don't like men now. I, I like them a whole lot less than they, them a whole lot less than I did before. Um, but I kind of felt like I was like in love in a friend way, but I kind of thought that I was in love in like a sex way. Oh God! <laughs> but at I've, the time I, didn't, I was like a virgin. Like I was, I was really <laughs> like, like re- I was church girl. I was like, you know, and I'm in love with my friend who's a boy and um, I'm telling him, on New Year's Eve. And he was like, not into it, but really kind. (laughs) And now looking back, I'm like, 
Well, I've never even imagined having sex with him, but I imagined like holding hands because we were like best friends. Mm. I was like a late bloomer in everything, really, really. Partly because I was so into church, I think. Like I didn't, and I had a gay boyfriend in high school. When you, <laughs> when was the first time that you, and you can tell me to fuck right off, but when was the <laughs> well, first time so that you got to have that feeling reciprocated? Like where you like brought somebody that level of, when you like brought like oh oh yeah like who's the first like my first love yeah like the yeah exactly i think the first time i was in love and someone was in love back was my gay boyfriend like we Mm. weren't like hooking up or like kissing with our mouths open but we really were like really in love and then i think Mm. the first time that i had sex with someone i loved he was like my worst boyfriend um, so it wasn't, didn't end up well, but we definitely were in love, but he was really toxic and bad. Mm-hmm. But then the first, um, person that I dated that wasn't a man, uh, was actually, um, my worst ex-boyfriend's ex. And so, um, we bonded cause we were like, um, she was like texting me like after hangouts, like that felt more like a date and like, oh, I almost kissed you. And I was like, am I interested in like kissing a woman? Like, and then I was really interested, but then I didn't really have feelings for her. And then she wanted to date me and <laughs> it was bad, but it was, everything just leads you down the right path though. Like also, it sounds like, <laughs> go ahead, try Megan. <laughs> She's married now to a woman. And like, we both thought mm. we were straight at the time. So it's like, everything works out. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like you and I have had, look, here's one thing I'll say about, I, I found this out recently that a word that like accurately describes my love life, <laughs> my history is yeah. messy, messy. Yes. Messy. Yeah. I didn't know yeah. that for a long time. Somebody <laughs> asked me, I was, what was I doing? Oh, I was like, oh my God, this is so funny. <laughs> I was like at the Laugh Factory doing a show that Kevin Nealon runs where he, you like do new material, then he interviews you about your oh, material and it's Kevin Nealon. It's like such a funny, you're like, what is going, how did this, I don't know. But anyway, I like did this material. We sit down. I've like never met him before. He's like, would you say you're promiscuous? And I was like, no. <laughs> oh, wait, what? Because <laughs> I was talking about like freezing my eggs. I don't totally know. But anyway, it was like a whole. Why did he ask you that? Did you say something? in? <laughs> I said, um, and by the way, it's like not even, I'm not even talking shit. I just was like, it was no, such a serious surprise. <laughs> but I, I like, I, I appreciate the question because yeah. as I sat with it, I was like, no, I don't, I'm yeah. not promiscuous. And it was like, yeah. beat, beat. But I am messy because I like got to, I yeah. was like flashing through moments of like, I have like fucked a clown that then dated my best friend <laughs> after my best friend came out to me with her breast out of her bathing suit. But like, she didn't know, so I had to tell her. Anyway, it looks like, but we're, it's I feel like similar it's messy to in a saying. specific way. It's like, I, I'm like, um, not, uh, I, like, I try so hard not to hurt people's feelings, but <gasps> I am, I'm like, um, a romantic, curious person <gasps> who's like, my life is big and, and, and wild and I'm happy with my life, but I'm like, fall in love with a friend or like, you know what I mean? <laughs> I, you know what? I really do. <laughs> but then I know people that are me- bad messy in a bad way and they oh, hurt people and they're selfish. <laughs> yes. That's, then it's, you know what I mean? But we're I, messy in a sweet, endearing way. And it's like, we're, we're our lives are exciting because we make them exciting. And then we're like curious about the clown or the oh. ex's ex. 
I love that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know? Yeah. Actually, I, yeah, I think that is right. Mm-hmm. I Again, I don't know. I think like, I don't know if it's like a gender thing, but I like, I think for a long time, I even tried to like fight the idea of that kind of sweet messiness that, that oh, I yeah. do think is like kind of a cool gift, you know, like, yeah, I like it in my life, you know, and I, I think other people like it too, but because we don't have like, yeah, it would be one thing if, you know, I'm not like stealing from people or like, it's like, yeah, <laughs> but there is like a certain level of a ride that my life is. It's like we're, I think it feels like we're like ready for the ride and we get on the roller coaster. And then sometimes people are like, oh, we're friends. Like we, I, I've had certain, like at least three times me and a friend have had feelings for each other. And then the friend's been like, I'm worried about the friendship or like, uh, oh, we're uh-huh. so close. And it's like, yeah, but life's short. And I think like, <laughs> You know what I mean? And I'm like, I, do know I totally mean. understand. Like, you don't want to do, like, you yeah. don't want to explore, but you, you, we have feelings. That's totally fine. But on my part, I'm like, let's get on the roller coaster and see because, like, life is so short and sweet. And then it's like, we mm. have feelings. Why not? You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Yeah, that's the same. I know. I have my oldest friend who I've been friends with since I was 10. We have so much in common and we've known each other for 30 years mm. and we would always do the opposite thing in every situation that you're talking about. Like whenever I call her to talk about something, I'm like, I think I'm going to do this. She's yeah, like, right. don't do that. Don't do that. Do nothing. Not that though. <laughs> Certainly not that. And and it is funny because I had this like visual recently of our relationship where she's always like at the edge of a cliff being like, oh no, a cliff. And I'm at the bottom of the cliff being like, it's pretty it's fun. fun. <laughs> yeah. Wait, that makes sense of why we are so addicted to stand up then, I think. And it like, sure does. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's what life is. It's like, well, at the end of your life, do you want to be like, oh, I'm glad that we never crossed anything when we, <laughs> I'm like, if both people want to like explore something, then why not? Because life's so short. And if it's a good, strong friendship, then it will last. And then mm. If something shitty happens, then that was your true colors. Mm, yeah, totally. I mean, here's what I'm going to say, just in general. Number one, I already love you. I'm just like <laughs> ready to be friends. <laughs> no. Yeah. I feel like I've known you for so long. I know. Like in my head. And I agree. We're, well, I I don't know. Anyway, we're boys. I'm, I'm into the friendship. Um, that's number one. Number two, I just think to end in, a, in like the most perfect spot... You know, everything that you've look, there's a lot of different types of people in the world. Some people <laughs> need to be accountants yes. and then they are going to tell yes. everybody they're they might tell them that on a plane <laughs> or not. But what you're talking about, this like way of being in the world. Yeah. Like it you didn't need a pandemic. It oh, did. It did happen in a pandemic. <laughs> but like you didn't need you didn't need a pandemic because this is like. Yeah, this is what's serving you. You know, you showed up like this and it's a it's a beautiful way to show up and other people are going to do a different thing, but I'm so happy for you. And, oh my um, God, thank you for saying that. People never say the thing about the pandemic. They always say, like, thank God that that happened to you. No. <laughs> or they'll be like, oh, lucky or le- lucky that it, you know, yeah. So that's really nice. Well, here's, this is a podcast. So just... This is at, we're at 53 minutes. So just (laughs) when you, when you, somebody says that to you, go back to this part of the podcast. Yeah. yeah, You can hear my voice because I'm telling you, Meg, that that's not true. And, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. You were, are always headed here. 
I'm going to use the sound bite for sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Just hold it up. Hold up the yeah, phone. <laughs> <laughs>